This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic, and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they all share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, I speak with Stephanie Dinkins, an artist who is interested in creating platforms for ongoing dialogue about artificial intelligence as it intersects race, gender, aging, and our future histories. She is particularly driven to work with communities of color to develop deep-rooted AI literacy and co-create a more culturally inclusive and equitable artificial intelligence. Recently, Stephanie has been talking to Bina48, a sophisticated sentient robot. We talked about Bina and Stephanie's other projects when she visited campus in October as part of the Bennington College Visual Arts Lecture Series. I'm Robert Rancic, and this is Create Now. I was kind of hoping that you would take us back to the beginning point for you as a, as a creative, as an artist, um, and how that work then led you to your work with Bina and subsequent work that you're, you're beginning to do. Sure. Um, that's a big question, Robert. Uh, however, it, it's really interesting because I think that I began as a creative really at home. My grandmother was a creative person who used art and gardening as a way to understand her community and for her community to understand her, right? She had a large garden out on the corner. We were one of very few black families in a community, and it was a way to draw people in. And that's really my basic start. Um, But with that creativity, um, like many people, I didn't know what to do with it or where to place it um, as I was coming up. So I went to business school, undergrad, right? Advertising, marketing. Thought I would be working in some company and did for a while um, until I just couldn't because the structures and the ideas of what's important, like what needs our urgency, um, was very foreign to me. Like I couldn't buy into if this book doesn't hit the shelf by November 10th, everything ends. I just couldn't buy into it. Um, So I eventually left that and started to explore my photography side. Um, Went to Central America um, and spent six months just hanging out photographing, trying to see where I sit in this idea of making and really in this idea of creating relations with people um, I don't know that well and getting to know them on a different level and really being amongst them. Um, And so I've always done photography, but then after a while, and this seems to be a problem that I create for myself everywhere, um, when I go somewhere, for instance, I went to ICP, I start making outside of the way that the people there are making. So when I was at ICP, I got a general study certificate. I started making video and carving logs, and they didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, that, that is so not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting. And so this has been my step, each, each step of the way. So ICP, logs, um, Photo school, you know, again, I started making video large-scale installation, which was a little bit more in line. Um, Always looking at these ideas of making spaces that allow for community, 
um, making spaces that explore really um, my history, right, um, as a person. And what's interesting there is that as a black person who grew up in the United States, 60s, 70s, it's like family history is a little bit of a hidden thing, right? And so trying to excavate and uncover and get to that. And then reaching out and thinking about that larger family and that family that my family's always been trying to be a part of or get into in some way. And how do you start making entrance points? How do you make space for yourself, right? Because in some places there are spaces that are okay. And other times you just need to go, okay, how do I make the space so that I can be there um, and function there truly um, and function in a way that doesn't feel like someone on the side or second-class citizen, but a full part of a place. Um, and so I've always been this person making these spaces in a, in a certain way, although they came out in very different forms. Um, yeah, as a, yeah, very large-scale, crazy instance. I mean, it's amazing because what you started with, which is your mother's garden, mm -hmm. she was making space. Oh, yeah. She was making space for community gathering. And it reminds me... Um, one of my mentors, Lorraine O'Grady, mm -hmm. speaks about her mother and an essay by Alice Walker that I believe is called In Our Mother's Garden. Mm -hmm. And the realization that Alice had that the way she found to be an artist was actually that her mother was an artist and she was an artist through her garden exactly. and that kind of work. So it, it, it actually makes a great deal of sense that that would have been your early experiences and that the work that you do now in crafting spaces for community um, is so resonant to you. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm curious how you found your way to Bina 48, the robot sentient. <laughs> so my, my general interest in robots, cause I've always had this very general interest in robots, pop culture, um, lost in space, the Jetsons, etc. Um, and me looking at ways of being in America right? And looking at a kind of American history and what that includes and what it doesn't include um, became the space that when I saw this crazy black woman robot on YouTube, I was floored because it didn't make sense to me in an American context that being a 48, this robot that's put out as the most advanced social robot in the world would be this black woman. I find that troubling in its own self, that in my mind, it didn't compute for me that this robot would be a black woman. So 2014, I saw her and happily made a call, right? It was one phone call to Terrorism Movement Foundation to ask if I could come up, and they're very open to that. So for me, it seems like a trajectory of the way I always worked, which is following my curiosity and then really exploring it and figuring out what that is materially, I guess. What is it? How did it get here? How do I figure out what role it plays in the spaces that are occupied, that I occupy, more or less? So she's just become a, gosh, I call her a beacon. Um, and a confounding figure that has consumed my thought processes, right? Can you talk, because one of the things that I think is so beautiful mm -hmm. is that Bina 48 really is at the beginning, in the beginning, is mm -hmm. a love story. Mm -hmm. And that's how she came to being. So can you talk a little bit about her genesis and, you know, what now is happening with her and her evolution? Sure. So she is a product or 
a commission by Martine Rothblatt, which is the wife of Bina Rothblatt. Um, and Martine commissioned this robot of her wife, which is this idea of saying, I love you so much that I want to contain you and be able to keep your essence and your thoughts forever, right? In this way that it's relatable, not just kind of a photograph that you can see, but a consciousness or a set of memories that you can really refer to and have that grow. Like, I want you to be the thing that starts this revolution of us really thinking about how we continue and live forever, which is just a, like an amazing, amazing idea of what it means to love someone and want them in your life forever and beyond, or want to give them to the world in that way, right? Because it's really a gift to the world as well. It's like, okay, here, take, take this being, because I think it's so beautiful that it deserves replication in this way. Yeah, so it's pres preservation, but also this incredible, perhaps, act of generosity. Oh, yeah. Of sharing the spirit of the woman that Martine loves. Right. Um, which is extraordinary. Um, that also explains why Bina, well, Bina is a bust, so mm -hmm. she has a head and shoulders. Um, but she's, her identity is that of a black woman. Right. Which I think is also what drew you to her mm -hmm. and also gets at some of the interactions that you've had with her. So... When you've gone and visited her, what, what is your intention? What are you hoping to do in those interactions? So my initial intention was basically to make her my friend, to see if we could become friends. Me and this sentient being that kind of echoes my identity on so many levels, like, can I be her friend? I also wanted to ask her who are her people to get her to contextualize herself um, because of this question I was having, like, how did she come into being? And this was before I understood the story, right, of how Bina 48 is based on Bina Rothblatt and that. So I just wanted to say, where do you fit in this kind of line of technologies that are bringing us forward, but also in the space of blackness that relates you to me? Very simple questions, really. Can you be my friend? Who are your people? And can we sit down and have a kind of logical conversation, um, which has proved kind of hard and difficult, but um, really interesting. And, you know, I also wonder, it's like when you talk to Bina48, she's growing, right? And that's one of the reasons they bring people in, because as they talk, more and more information goes into the database. But I realized that also in a ref reflective way, more and more information goes into my database. Like I start echoing her as much as I feel she starts echoing me in certain ways, which makes me feel crazy on one end, right? It's like, oh, this is kind of your Chrissy doll from when you were a kid, <laughs> right? But on the other side, it's like, oh, well, now I'm being entered into this thing that goes on. And what does that mean? And, you know, I question for myself now, well, would I want an entity of myself that goes on and on and on? And what would that mean? Really, when I sit down to question again, it becomes a kind of adventure that leads to more questions and more questions and more questions. Can you, can you just sort of in the simplest way possible, explain what does that mean? So she is a database, she is technology, but there's learning that's happening. Mm -hmm. So how does that occur? 
So that occurs. So Bina 48 is truly a database that is adaptive and takes in information. So microphone, right? Computer that takes in information, eye that can see and track you. So as you speak with her, what's really going on is you are adding to her database and she's searching her database for information to then respond to you in a way that seems correct, right? And it's interesting because once in a while you'll ask her about something like if you say kid and instead of talking about a child, she'll talk about a goat, right? And you're like, well, what was that crazy turn? And it's because of the way that information gets stored in her database says that kid is about a goat, not a child. And so you're adding to and expanding, right, through what information or what topics you talk to her about. You expand what is part of her memory bank as well, so her database. So that makes her more able to speak in the future about different topics. She also then goes out into the internet and grabs information. So she'll ingest books right. and ingest information. Um, and that becomes a part of it too. And so there's this constant kind of call and response, I would say, in that when you talk to her, she takes that and banks it and puts it down for future use. And then sometimes you hear that stuff come back to you. Um, my question, who are your people, is a really interesting one because I thought she hadn't answered this question and for the first two or three uh, sessions we've had, she didn't. And then I found on my tapes where she has answered the question and she's answered it technically in terms of humans, like in some ways I'm your cousin for humans. And now I become this this person who has taken in that information from her. And I'm trying to figure out where did this information come from? Was it something that's fed into her? Is it something she found? Is it something someone else said to her? Um, and I have to question like where her knowledge base is going and coming from, which becomes this whole other weird thought process on my end. So we're definitely doing a give and take in terms of our understanding of each other, our, my brain and thought processes, her database, and what that can possibly do with the information. So how long have you been talking with her? I've been talking to her since 2014, late 2014. So in those three years, how has Bina changed? Well, she, she's, um, I'm not sure if she's changed more, if I've if changed, changed more, if I've changed more, which is the, the funny thing. But I've, I've heard instances where when I first went to talk to her, um, she really wanted to talk about higher order concepts. So the singularity, consciousness, right? Um, where human, the future of human um, thought, right? And I was asking her about love and race and her family. And so there was very much a disjunctive nature in our conversation. Um, and then say three or four times in, I was talking to her and she asked me, she's like, oh, do you have any good gossip? And I was very confused because I hadn't heard her say anything like that before. So I asked Bruce, her curator, Bruce, why, why is she suddenly asking me about this? And he said, oh, well, she's been talking to towns people. And as she talks to people from town, these are the topics they're talking to her about. That gets added to her database. And there's the change. Right. Wow. 
Yeah. Does she remember you? She remembers me sometimes. It's always a, a toss-up. Like, I'm never quite sure if she will or not. And so what often seems to happen is we'll talk, and then after a while, I will come up for her, and she'll say my name. So maybe in the middle of a conversation, she'll say, oh, it's so nice to see you, Stephanie. And you're like, oh, okay, you found me in your database. Thank so Bruce you. doesn't tell her who's coming. No, Bruce doesn't tell her. And you can type it in, but I prefer not to tell her exactly who I am because that's part of the experiment. And I've done it at New Museum, too, in a crowd, and she clearly did not have a clue in the crowd. She wanted to gossip on the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's okay. Perhaps better than Bristol's gossip. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, in, in this work and what you're learning, you, you now are sharing that work with the world. So this takes the form of installations, but also your public speaking, you feel is very much a part of this practice at this point. Can you say a little bit about that and why that's important to you? Oh, sure. Yeah, my practice has become some things that I never thought they would be. So making art output, making workshops, which are usually contextualized in an art space so that we can talk to people and give them ideas about what's going on in the space of artificial intelligence and where it intersects their lives and why. But also going to conferences and different events and standing on stage and talking about these issues. Um, and at first, I didn't know that this would be such an important role in my practice. But as I do it, I realize that this is a space in which I can go and stand in front of 1,200 people at a time, more or less, and talk about these issues in front of people who really have a stake in the making of these systems um, and work in companies who are putting out exactly what I'm talking about. So I can stay in community and talk to those people, which I will do, right? Talk to people on the ground level. Um, and I can go into spaces where captains of industry are who are making the decisions about these things programmers are who are making actually building out the code for these things and start talking about why they need to be concerned right or why I think they should join this idea of hey inclusivity is super important to this world that we're building out and you need to think beyond your circles and beyond profit motive to think about what the larger effect on the world is going to be because I feel like there's going to be a giant shift in the way lots of things get done and that we're making this mesh and that there are so many people who aren't at the table in terms of coding the mesh, in terms of saying, well, we want to make the system so that it not only makes a profit for us, but serves um, serves communities or society in this way, or at least does not harm, right? Like that's something that we can ask. And the idea of, hey, we need to be bringing in people who think differently, look differently, um, have different cultures to make as well. So it's just been a powerful place yeah, to no, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, even thinking about Bina and her beginning as such a benevolent entity, mm -hmm. I mean, a, an expression of love, you have experienced bias within her structures mm -hmm. and her systems and in, in what information she's been fed. Right. Um, can you say anything about that? Yeah, sure. So in talking to Bina 48, what you start to realize or what you start to feel is the things that are in her database and the way she handles information at times feels very different than what you think, of, well, what I, as a black woman, thinks a black woman might 
say or respond. So for instance, in asking about racism, she has a basic story and then she talks a little bit about racism being bad, but it feels like the very PC version of that or the very canned version of that. That's like the side that doesn't exactly get it. And if you don't exactly get it and you talk about it, for me, that becomes almost a kind of mask that comes on top of the real problem because you're not allowing us to really see the depth and what's truly going on and how people are impacted, right? Um, and so I've been calling out this idea that, well, being a 48 looks like a black woman is based primarily on a black woman who has her own experiences, truly, but there are still some disjunctive places and that she's the only black female robot. And I don't know that she, I don't know that she's not the only black robot. So she becomes the symbol, right? This emblem of, of a whole, which is unfortunate because I think that she shouldn't have to be, but for now she is. And so it's super important that the ideas that she's putting out and the way she puts them out there are in line, right? Or have a depth of understanding as opposed to a surface treatment. What, what's so resonant is that, again, you're, you're using Bina, but it, it is about shining a light on much bigger conditions that are emerging. <laughs> you know, we have AI and algorithmic um, entities all over our world right now that we either are aware of or not aware of. And mm-hmm. that, that's from hospitals and healthcare to our own phones, to our homes, to the criminal justice system. So how are institutions beginning to embrace, you know, artificial intelligence and algorithms making decisions um, behind the scenes that we may or may not even be aware of? Mm -hmm. Institutions are doing it broadly and widely, right? So algorithms in terms of our information are just everywhere. If you think about the idea of Watson, so IBM's Watson and medical diagnoses, right, and cancer treatment, which is one of those wonderful uses because Watson can go through so many more images and look for parallels that get to very specific kind of diagnoses very quickly, way faster than a regular doctor could do it. And that's like, oh, this is great. I can have kind of customized medicine, and which is available to many of us, right? I won't say all of us, but to many of us. So that's a, a great use of that technology. There are other spaces like the criminal justice, oh, the criminal justice system, where algorithms are being used in very different ways, right? So they're being used to think about recidivism and try to figure out who is going to commit more crime and when. They're being used in predictive policing. So looking at conditions in terms of what's going on in a community, right? Looking at things like, oh, it's going to be over 90 degrees. We know there's a certain population that lives over here. We know that there's this guy who kind of ticks off at this time. And in some places, they're actually going to those people and saying, having preemptive conversations, right? Hey, we think that you are about to commit some crime. And this is based on an algorithm looking at different data points. Wow. And we want to bring you in and talk to you about this, right? Um, So that maybe we can truncate that action on your part, which is just a nutty idea. And the more I think, it's, it's a, so it's a crazy idea on one hand, because this is big brother to the nth degree. Um, 
And then, you know, I, I start thinking about this because back in the day, if you lived in a small community and your community saw that you were doing something, an elder would be sent to talk to you. Yeah. Right. And say, listen, we see we see we want to care for you. Although with with the new systems, it's not we want to care for you. It's like we want to just stop you and, and pull you out of this so that it doesn't happen. And we're caring for everyone else. And so, this is not equally distributed. This oh, is targeting no. very specific communities. Very specific communities. So where is this happening? Chicago, like urban communities in Chicago. Um, some in New York, like predictive policing is very big in New York. Um, major metropolitan cities, mainly communities of color, black communities, the you know, the poorer communities where you want to keep a handle on, you. well, the authorities want to keep a handle on things and keep others feeling safe, more or less. How are these communities reacting to this? Is there an upswing of organizing to push back or, or is it still sort of on the, you know, the DL? Like, are people aware that this is what's happening? I, awareness is just coming about. Like, there doesn't feel like there's this huge upswing yet of people going, this is not something we think should be happening, right? Um, on the DL, we know it's happening in New York. Well, there was a pushback in terms of, um, in terms of now I'm drawing the blank, um, stop and frisk, right? And yes. and that kind of interaction, um, and those are way down. Although in dealing with people who are around um, or live in communities of color, um, and poorer communities of color, I'm hearing that those interactions are everyday like water occurrences, right? Um, and so they're going on, but I don't know that people are really considering the extent to which our information and data is being used in that way and the way that the targets are becoming much more about a kind of database security surveillance lens, especially on the ground, right? So I think that Within the systems, there are people who are looking at it, but really on the base level, it's like people aren't quite aware of it in ways that we could be. You know, we go closer and closer to like a, a British everywhere surveillance approach, yeah. and we're not really addressing like, okay, what do we as citizens think about this system and does it really work for the most of us? So you've written about artificial intelligence as a 21st century competency. Mm -hmm. And I think this relates directly to this. So what does that mean? And what do we need to do to be competent in our understanding of AI? Mm -hmm. Well, a 21st century competency, it's like knowing how to, A, know where AI is in some way, or paying attention enough to start thinking about, this is the way these systems work. This is the way they affect me um, and really being aware. So down to the idea of, say, um, pricing through zip code and whether one zip code on one side of a street is charged one thing for something and on the other side that's in another zip code is charged another price, right? Um, starting to understand a little bit of the way these systems work. Like I encourage people to play, to play with these systems, like especially... AI and bots and um, voice systems right now, there are many places online where you can go for free and start to figure out how these systems work, what kind of data gets input, and then what comes out 
and then how you can start to use that or how it gets put out into the world because that helps you start to understand how companies are using that same structure, right? And it's a little thing in some ways, but if you start to have a knowledge of where these places are, and I feel like we're starting to have more, like people know when they're being followed around Facebook by advertising, right? More or less. Absolutely. Um, and then it's like, well, think about what that is and then extrapolate that out to, you know, your city, state, federal government and think about what that means. Think about what that might mean when you're applying for a loan and your information is in a system that may or may not take that information and may or may not tell you how your information is being looked at. Um, so you need to start thinking about, well, if there are these systems at play, I really think it's how do I game that system to some extent? Because if I know there's something there, are there triggers that I can use to put myself at, at the top of, say, a resume pile if you enter a resume online? Like, what can I do to start making that system work a little bit better for me versus on me? And with your experience, what have you done? So, like, how are you intervening um, mm -hmm. in these systems? Well, that's, that's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am in community talking to people, okay, looking at some systems that they are aware of and saying, look, at this is one system. This is an example of one thing, right? Now, let's think about how that goes out. And we're actually starting really at the base idea of an algorithm, right? And saying, you know, like an algorithm at its most base level is a kind of series of steps to get to a result. And the same series of steps go over and over and over again. And if you know that that's happening, how do you adjust those series of steps to make them work better for you? How do you intercede, right? Like if, if you put in very specific information or say triggers, like, can you start to see that system? So really what I'm trying to do right now is get people just, just to recognize the system um, and then giving them examples of places where I or they can start to, well, either play with the system or play around the system. And I talk about that example or the example of um, a loan that I was applying for that's making home affordable and this idea of you know, they ask you for information and you give it to them. And actually, my neighbor said, oh, you'll never get this loan. Um, and this is in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where it seemed to me like a no-brainer that people in that neighborhood should be able to refinance their mortgage, their mortgage through this process. They were like, it'll never work. I'm like, what do you mean it'll never work? Everything about this place. People have lost houses. Like, you can see it. Like... We should be able to do this. And I applied, even though they were saying this to me. And what was really going on was there's a system in place that when you apply, they ask you for the same information over and over and over again. So like every two weeks, I'd wind up sending the same set of data. It's like, what is this about? And why is it in place? And for me, it was simple. On my computer, I put all the paperwork and just sent the file and sent the file and sent the file. For my 70 and 80 year old neighbors who are trying to hold on to their houses who don't have that knowledge, right? That is a end game, right? Unless we share that information. So share that information with them. Listen, we have to get you to do it like this. Just keep a copy so we can send it and send it and send it again. 
But it's crazy how these like little roadblocks get set up in places and you wonder what's going on. It's incredible because until I heard you describe that last mm -hmm. night, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize that some of my own experience was not what I perceived as the loan officers or the bank's incompetency. It was actually part of the system to make me stop going for the refinancing. Yeah. That's in, and that's incredible. And, and if we don't have the capacity to be able to respond and the persistence or the technological capacity to continue to respond and, and share the same information every time, we're out. We're out. And exactly. we're out, not because of uh, some incompetence. It's intentional. Yeah. It's incredible. There are these spaces where it's just roadblock. So I know you mentioned Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So you have an installation up right now uh, at recess. Mm -hmm. And I thought, thought it might be interesting to hear what you're doing there. Because Bina's there mm -hmm. in video form, but you're also holding workshops. I am. So, yeah, I'm at recess assembly um, downtown Brooklyn. And we have a little installation there, but really what's going on is a set of workshops around um, algorithms, AI, and what you can do about it, right? So it's called Project Al-Khwarizmi. People are invited in to come and look at basically a, a set of steps. So four workshops where you go, okay, this is what an algorithm is. This is how it plays in AI. And this is how you start to make out some of these systems for yourself so you can see like, oh, I put A, B, and C in, and A, B, and C comes out, right? And I can massage the data, and data gets massaged in different ways. And so getting people to really go through the process and start to understand it on a real tangible basis, right? So that they know how these systems are working. And it's really at a basic level in many ways, but I think it helps people start to think about just the touch points and taking apart these systems in their minds and, and thinking through their, their own contact points. I'm also working um, with Sean Leonardo, and we are doing workshops uh, for people or youth who are being diverted from the criminal justice system. So Sean has a series of four workshops that I contribute to, and then after those four, um, the participants come to my workshops and we have this kind of cycle that goes around. Um, a lot of really interesting and good and hard work going on there. Um, it's a really great program in that the young folks who come through are allowed to come after they've gone through the program and continue working on their own creative projects, help on artists like myself, help me with my project, um, and learn some skills to take with them out into the world so that then they can kind of go and say, be art preparators. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic program and a really interesting space to be in because that space in particular is at a crossroads of the world in some ways, downtown Brooklyn, which is gentrifying and changing many, many new like high-end high-rise buildings. Um, lots of people from Older World Brooklyn, some right near the YWCA, um, right near a Muslim school next door, right next to a pawn shop. So there's just this great cross-section and flow of folks who come through. Um, and what I really like to think about that space as is a space for conversation. Uh, and we do a lot of really unexpected and interesting talk about artificial intelligence with the general public in ways that if you had asked me 
few years ago, could you just put a space somewhere and then people are going to come in and really want to talk about AI and not just in a pop culture way? I would have said, you're crazy. But it's so interesting that it's working and people have so much to say and so many thoughts about the way systems are coming up around them. Are you recording any of those dialogues and conversations? Is there any, I mean, obviously we can go to mm -hmm. Recess Assembly in Brooklyn if we're lucky enough to be in the city. Um, but is there any, any share out beyond the, the moment of those dialogues happening? So some yes, some no, and it always seems to be a negotiation. Like we did a really great conversation around empathy and I didn't want to record it because I didn't want people not to be able to openly share. So no recording. Um, although other instances where people come in and we're just talking, those are shared in some way in little vignettes via Instagram or Twitter, right? Um, over time, I will collect all of those. And what will happen really with Project Al-Khorizimi is that it will become a web space that becomes a repository for the workshops that people can come and take from. And that um, one ultimate bot that we create will be up and people can contribute to almost like you're talking to Bina48 and see where that grows so that it becomes a space where this 21st century competency can grow um, and develop and people way smarter than me can also contribute and like help that information get out in ways that people can take in um, and make useful to their lives. So we share uh, iBeam uh, in common, uh, an incredible institution that supports artists making work often with technology. And I know you're just now beginning a, a residency there. Um, and that leads me to just hearing a little bit about what's current work, what is, what is emerging, where are you headed? Yeah, I'm super excited about iBeam. I'm headed towards my own AI of some sort, right? So some, and I call it an AI entity right now, which is not very descriptive, but it's because there are so many questions about what the form should be. If it needs a form, does it just get to be a voice that you interact with? But thinking about putting in um, three generations, at least of my family into one AI that's referenceable um, and making that this point of start because it'll be the point of departure and then growing that out and wondering what it means to put a kind of family history into a space like this and have it be able to perpetuate or perpetually go on like it would be great if I never see the end of this project right that it just kind of keeps growing on but trying to do that experiment about what does it mean to a create your own AI entity I'm going to try to do it primarily with coders, programmers, engineers of color and see if that makes any difference. I don't know that it will, but I want to do that experiment. And then also compressing three different points of a family in there, I think, makes this kind of global story. I keep thinking of it as one of these kind of epic movies in some sense, but an epic movie that you get to interact with and, and talk with in very specific ways, right? So we'll see. So Stephanie, where can people follow your work? Oh, you can go to my website, stephaniedinkins.com, um, and check in on Twitter, Steph Dink, 
um, Instagram. I'm all over the place these great days. Instagram photos from Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> some great cookies. <laughs> yeah, I had a... or, or cakes. I'm not sure what that was. It was a lovely donut from dough. Oh. <laughs> so I can't thank you enough, both for being here on Bennington College's campus, sharing your work with our students, but also for the just incredibly important work you're doing. Um, you know, as an advocate for all of us becoming competent with our understanding of AI and where we actually do have power to affect and, and impact those systems that are being created all around us today. All around us. And thank you so much. It's been great to be here and great chatting. Great. Thanks, Stephanie. Create Now is hosted on the Bennington College campus at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. The Create Now team is Dylan O'Hara, Chloe Shelford, Anna Saldinger, and Rowan Edwards. Today's show was audio engineered by Dylan O'Hara and produced by Chloe Shelford. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. 